All right, this morning we'll continue our look at Matthew chapter 24 together. So if you turn there in your Bibles, they'd be greatly appreciated. Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to be looking at four verses this morning, starting in verse 32. And let's begin. Jesus speaking says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches, I'm sorry, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. If Matthew 24 wasn't complicated enough, we find ourselves this morning with four verses that have caused more confusion and more misunderstanding than probably the majority of the chapter. And this confusion is all centered around the idea of this generation. I like doing air quotes. I'm going to be doing a lot of air quotes today. This generation. And specifically, the identity of the generation in which Jesus is speaking of here in this passage. And he begins by addressing them and demonstrating to them through a parable, which is an example, a model, a symbol contained within a story, helping them to understand and ultimately answer their question from verse 3. If you turn back with me, unless your verse 3 is on the same page, and then you are cooler than I am. Verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And from that point forward, Jesus then proceeds to answer the second question in two parts that they simply have asked. And after last week, as Jesus painted again a more detailed picture of the tribulation period, starting at the center point, the three-and-a-half-year center point of the tribulation, identified by the abomination of desolation. And we've talked about this before. It is the parallel or mirrored image of the event of Anicus Epiphanes when he went into the temple, and there he slaughtered a pig on the altar, and he raised an image to Zeus. Now that happened before Jesus called them to look for the abomination of desolation. We get that term from Daniel. And many believe that that was simply fulfilled in the event of Anicus Epiphanes entering into the temple there in Jerusalem and defiling it in the manner in which he did. However, though, Jesus then tells us very clearly that it is still an event yet to be fulfilled ultimately in the future and will be fulfilled by the Antichrist. Paul tells us that. We also discover in Revelation chapter 13 when the actual event 
transpires. And from that point, he then lists the various occurrences, the various events that will happen here on this earth prior to his physical second coming to this earth. And then he follows that with what we have read this morning. So using this parable, he draws an illustration from a very common element within Israel, the fig tree. And he simply states, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. And we here in Chicago understand that when the trees begin to bud, the flowers begin to grow from the ground, we have at least six more months of winter to go, right? But in his simple illustration, he was just giving them an object lesson to say that the generation who sees these things will by no means pass away before all things have been fulfilled. Basically, just saying simply that when it starts, that generation will be the one to see its completion. Now, where does the confusion come in? Well, the fig tree has been often used in the Bible, Old and New Testament alike, to be an, uh, represent or a symbol of the nation of Israel. And this has given some to interpret this passage as the fig tree representing the nation of Israel solely. And I'm going to show you why I don't believe that's the case in this particular uh, section of Scripture in just a moment. But let me explain. In various places throughout the Old Testament, Jesus uses, or God uses figs to demonstrate or to illustrate Israel, uses the fig tree to illustrate Israel, and in other places to illustrate Israel, even in Matthew chapter 19. So many then conclude that if this does represent Israel, and it is designated by this generation, he must be speaking about the generation that he is currently talking about there in this account, the disciples. Their generation will by no means pass away until all these things come to pass. Well, that obviously isn't true. And when they discover that that's not true, they then move on to believe, well, then, because of the fig tree illustration, this must represent the rebirth of Israel in 1948. So this generation who sees the rebirth as a branch budding for leaves, that generation will by no means pass away until... All things have come to play. Now this has caused many to say things and write books that have been found to be incredibly inaccurate. If you were a Christian back in the 80s, you're old. No, uh, if you're a Christian back in the 80s like me, you possibly remember a book being written, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 88. Well, when that didn't occur... They followed it with its follow-up, 89 reasons that he's coming back in 89. 
And it was all predicated upon the understanding that the generation who sees the rebirth of Israel will be the generation that sees the Lord's return. So what begs the question then at this point is what constitutes a generation? How many years is found in a generation? Well, before we move to that, let me demonstrate for you why I believe that Jesus here is just using a simple illustration to let them know that when they see the tree budding, they know summer is about to arrive. For Luke, in Luke 21-29, should be on the screen behind me, when Luke gives this account, notice what he adds. Then he spoke to them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. So it isn't simply confined to the fig tree, and therefore I don't believe we can confine the understanding of the fig tree simply to the nation of Israel. Where it's appropriate to do so in other places may not be appropriate to do here. And that's very important in your personal Bible study. Sometimes words mean different things and should be interpreted in different ways. Not all the time, but sometimes, and I believe this is an occasion of that. So then, who is he speaking to? I believe that he is speaking to the generation that will begin to see these things unfold. What things? The generation that sees the abomination of desolation. The generation who sees the cosmic disturbances prior to his return. The generation who sees the uh, various details that he lists for us throughout Matthew 24 contained in the tribulation period. Basically, when the tribulation period starts, that generation will by no means pass away until all things have been fulfilled. I believe that is the best suited interpretation of this passage. Now, to answer the question, how long is a generation? Again, a debated subject, but I think can be clearly, um, are clearly defined by biblical references. If you turn to Numbers 32, 13, it should be on the screen again behind me, if you're a little groggy and lazy and don't want to flip in your Bible, I'll leave that between you and the Lord. Notice what God says here. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. So many believe, and I agree with them, that a generation is defined by 40 years. Now, there's another reason. It's a cultural reason, an Israeli cultural reason. A Jewish man couldn't really articulate, teach, and so forth until he was 40 years old. Better stated as this, he wasn't really taken seriously until he was 40 years old. 
Because at 40, they believed in that culture that not only could you um, gain intellectual knowledge, but the 40 years would also uh, gain you um, practical experience to be combined, therefore, into wisdom. And so 40 seems to be the best understanding of the length of generation that is used here. Now, we have other occurrences in the Bible where generation can mean a long period. Uh, We have other uh, places in the Bible that generation can be a specific demographic. But in this context, and this is where context becomes key to our interpretation of Scripture, it seems to be a general principle. So the generation that sees these things, of course, the abomination of desolation, which will therefore three and a half years later conclude with the physical return of Jesus Christ. Of course, three and a half years being less than 40, that generation by no means shall pass away. And so I believe this is what Jesus is referring to. That the generation that begins to see the events that unfold from verses um, oh, f- you know, 4 through 31, it is this generation in the tribulation that will see the return of Jesus Christ. In verse 33, he says, Know that as summer is near, so also in, when you see all these things, again, context is key, know that it is near at the doors, meaning it's about to happen. Verse 34, as surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So it's clear that I believe he is referring to the events that he listed just prior to this. And this generation who sees these things by no means will pass away until all things are fulfilled. Now that helps us clarify, and I think also set in proper perspective and context, what he is saying here. And so let us be skeptical when we again go to the annals of wisdom called YouTube and we start floating through various videos that tell us various things, and this individual has been given a secret by God and so forth. I have seen so many of these videos and before that read so many of these books and time after time after time after time they're wrong. That's why I believe that the best way to stay grounded with a proper perspective of biblical eschatology is to derive it from the Word of God alone. Now we know the Lord is coming back, don't we? And we are certainly 2,000 years closer than we've ever been before. And with the birth of Israel, the rebirth of Israel in in 1948, we know that the stage is being set. In 1967, when Israel regained Jerusalem, we know that the stage is further being set. But... Let us be careful that when we hear about these secret predictions, these you know, elusive signs, you know, 
the harbingers of various understandings and, and so forth. Let us be careful. Yes, we should live with the urgency and the knowledge of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He can come back for his church at any time. But let us not go as far then as to become, you know, paralyzed in our Christian faith. We still have to occupy until he comes. And that is our mandate. That's what we as Christians should set ourselves to do. But now we come to verse 35. And within verse 35, Jesus points to one of the most neglected aspects of biblical eschatology. He alludes to it. He infers to it here in verse 35. In verse 35, he tells us very clearly that heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. The only way to remain secure in an insecure world as a Christian is to be grounded in God's Word. That's the only way. It gives us bearing. It sets our direction straight. It keeps us our perspective proper. And we don't vacillate with the tides, of the changing tides of opinion that the world will subject us to day in and day out, week in and week out, month after month. It keeps us grounded in knowing who God is and why things are happening in the world the way they are happening. It encourages us when we're discouraged. It edifies us when we feel beaten down. It lifts us up when the world is trying to tear us down. It reminds us that He is in control and that all things are subjected to His sovereignty. It reminds us that Jesus Christ came as our living Savior, died and rose again to allow all of the redemption of mankind and this world to occur. It reminds us of the truth in a time where we are saturated by lies and deception. So to neglect the reading of the Word of God on a daily basis, you're only hurting yourself. You're only contributing to the insecurity that you may find yourself surrounded by. I can't encourage you enough to take time each and every day to read God's Word. To spend time in prayer over it. Now, you may not understand everything that you are reading. You may get to sections of the Bible that feel as if you're going down a dry water slide, which I will say is not a comfortable experience. But I will tell you, when it is all said and done, you will be grateful that you did. So many Christians are reactionary today. We find ourselves in a circumstance, we react to that circumstance, we, we look to God's Word and we look to it as a fortune cookie. My wife was so sad yesterday, we, we got some wonderful Chinese food and she, we pass out the fortune cookies afterwards and mine was great, Autumn's was great, but Dina didn't get one. So, just pray for her, okay? I have to tell you, I have to tell you a very funny story quickly. 
Uh, yeah, I just noticed that she is in the room. So if anyone has an extra bedroom for this week, uh, I'll be glad to help you with your personal devotions. No, um, we were, Dina was offered a teaching job 17 years ago, and she didn't feel that she was a personally equipped to fulfill that. Maybe you've experienced the same thing. God's called you to something that's above your ability. And we prayed about it, and we prayed about it, and we prayed about it, and we weren't getting any direct answers clearly. And so we did what any good Christian did. We went out to dinner to the China Buffet in our town. And afterwards, we got our fortune cookie, and she, hers, she opened it up, and there it says, you will start a new career. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, God used a donkey. You can use a fortune cookie. <laughs> True story. True story. No, I don't advocate that God speaks through fortune cookies. And if that's your only takeaway from today, I'll pray for you. But we become reactionary, don't we? But see, God wants us to prepare for those difficult circumstances beforehand. He wants us to be ready for them. And often when we read the Word of God, we may be reading something that at the moment doesn't seem to immediately apply or appear relevant to what I'm currently experiencing. And I find so many then just dismiss it. Oh, well, I read today and it didn't really apply to anything that I was going to through. And so they kind of just dismiss it. And I would say to them at that point, no, it's it may be not something you're going through right now, but it may be something you're going through a week from now. We need to prepare our hearts and mind before the fact. That when we do experience turbulent weather, we're ready and we're firmly planted on the rock rather than the shifting sands of the various wisdoms and opinions of this world. His word will never pass away. In Jesus saying this, he is saying that everything that I have told you will perfectly be fulfilled. It will come to pass. But just previous to that statement, he says heaven and earth will pass. The most neglected area of eschatology is the study of the new heavens and the new earth found in Revelation 21 and 22. It is the ultimate hope for us as Christians. When we talk about salvation, we often limit it and confine it just to when I die, I will go to heaven. And that is true. But do you realize that's not your final destination for all eternity? It's the new heaven and the new earth that God will provide for us. It is this new heaven and new earth that Isaiah, in Isaiah 65, 17 through 19, promised that he would bring about. A world that hasn't been tainted by sin, that hasn't been infected by death. A world with no more darkness within it. The elimination of all corruption. And God with us permanently for all eternity. 
So I think it would be just if we now turn to Revelation chapter 21 and remind ourselves of the blessed promises of the new heaven and the new earth. I will tell you, this is one of the most fascinating studies of all eschatology. And part of the fascination derives from the fact that there's such limited information concerning it. But that shouldn't surprise us. If we remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul talks about his experience in the third heaven. And this is the heaven that we see in Revelation 4 and 5. Where the throne of God is. He is speechless to try to describe it to us. There aren't words that would allow us to appreciate what he saw. Even a picture would fall short of the splendor and the majestic manner in which eternity exists in heaven. But John gives us a little more about the new heavens and the new earth. And the first thing that he reminds us of is that all things are new. The word new there in Greek is fresh. It's brand new. Brand spanking new with that new car smell. You know, you used to be able to go to the car wash and they'd ask you if you want a scent inside and I always thought that it was great to have a 15-year-old car with a new car smell. But that's not the way this is going to be. It's going to be brand new. And it's never going to get old. Never. Notice how he begins in chapter 21, verse 1. And now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There is the promise fulfilled of Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Notice verse 4. In this brand new state, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things, again, passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. For I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. And he who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. A new world, brand new. 
never touched by sin, never affected by death. Knowing that sin and, of course, death bring about the pain and suffering that we experience here on this earth. Remember when Jesus walked amongst the Jewish people, that famous verse that is quoted by probably every Sunday school student who ever memorized a verse, Jesus wept. He wept at a funeral when he saw the effects of death upon the Jewish people. When he saw their mourning and their grieving. And then he thanked God that he could demonstrate that he was the resurrection and the life. John concludes here in verse 8 to remind us that this is apart from sin. It's apart from imperfection. This new world will be perfect. And we will be perfect in it, no longer subjected to temptation or the fallen nature or the pangs of death. It'll all be brand new. In verses 18 through 21, he quickly goes through the construction of the new Jerusalem and using most descriptive language that he could at that time, showing the various uh, jewels that were mentioned, sarnyx and amethyst and uh, topaz, and of course, concluding in verse 21, the 12 gates were of 12 pearls, and each individual gate was of one pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold, like transparent glass. That's the best he can do for us. I cannot wait to see that, can you? That is going to be awesome. I've seen some pretty cool things on this earth. Maybe you have also. Natural and man-created. But nothing is going to compare to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth that we will experience together when God makes all things brand new. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us that God will be at the center of all things. Verse 22 of chapter 21. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need for the sun or of the moon to shine. Sorry, those who love the moon and the sunshine. In it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life shall enjoy this. It is interesting to me that throughout Scripture, it began in a paradise, a garden. And when Eve succumbed to the temptation and then gave to Adam also to eat, 
The perfection was lost. The dominion was relinquished that God had given Adam and Eve. The one who gained that dominion was none other than Satan himself. And because they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were cast out of the garden and a cherubim was placed at the entrance of it, not allowing them to return to, end, to eat, to return into it and to eat from the tree of life, meaning that they would be in an eternal state of fallen nature before God. But when we come to the new heavens and the new earth, we once again return to a paradise, and this time there is nothing inhibiting us from going in and out. Because where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And he made it possible by the perfect mediation that he, that he created between man and God. For there's only one mediator between man and God, that is Christ Jesus, because he himself is God. When Jesus came the first time in John's gospel, it said that the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. And yet he was rejected. They turned away. And he wept over Jerusalem and said, I wanted to gather you under my wings, but you were unwilling to do so. He wanted to dwell with them. He interacted with them. And they rejected him. But here, his presence in heaven will eliminate any need for the sun or for the moon. I wonder what type of SPF, you know, sunblock you're going to need to stand in the presence of God. It's going to be spectacular. Absolutely spectacular. And as I had said in just a, a moment ago, the return to the garden takes place in chapter 22 in verse 1. Notice with me. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, notice that, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And notice this, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever, and in the Greek it's ever and ever, and ever, and ever. It just keeps going. The tree that was prohibited to us is now easily accessible. The river of life that he promised to the woman at the well in John 4 is now open and available to everyone, and anyone may drink of it. This is the language that John uses to describe the new heavens and the new earth, and we could spend hours, let's do that, We'll get out tomorrow. We could spend hours looking at this, but I just wanted to give you a taste this morning, a glimpse, if you will, into this incredible promise that God has given us. 
And though the chapters that preceded, verses, chapters 6 through 19, of the tribulation period and the birth pangs and everything that occurs, the rise of the Antichrist, and everything that happens, for you and I, this is it. Revelation 21 and 22. This is our eternity with God that we can look forward to. And because we are sealed in Him, and because nothing takes us out of, our, out of His hand, as we abide in Christ, let us be confident of this very thing that this awaits you and I. What a promise it is. One of the problems we have today is that we are so temporal focused as people. Many believe that Christianity has been promised to them to make everything better here and now and in the immediate. Yes, God can work and often does. God does bless His people and He often does. But the promises that we hang on to are not promises of continuous prosperity. They're not promises of continuous health. They're not, prosper- they're not promises of continuous, uh, you know, immediate gratification and every self-need that we have fulfilled by God. They are promises that are so vastly superior to any of those that they can carry us through the most difficult time in our life. Those who have that temporal mindset, are often so consumed, and I'm going to use that word because I feel it justifies what I'm about to say. They're so consumed at continuing to try to maintain all of the comforts of life that they're unwilling to relent and to let go and to let God use them for the purposes in which He has placed before them. This is so important to you and I to know this. God wants us to have an eternal perspective. Why? Because it allows us to suffer in the temporal moment for the glory of God. Jesus would have never done what Jesus did if he didn't know the glory that it would bring about. Remember what Jesus prayed in John 17. When he was asking the Father and praying on our behalf, Asking the Lord to restore him to to what he once was. He stepped out of heaven, took took on the flesh of a man, and it was God and man in one in an incredible dynamic way. And he came to pay for the sins of the world. He was willing to sacrifice his life at 33 because he knew the eternal impacts of that would be unstoppable. We too have to have that same mindset. Certainly we have the responsibility to fulfill our responsibilities here on this earth. But let us never abandon the eternal perspective for temporal comfort. Because ultimately we are all going to stand in this new heaven and this new earth. And at that point we're going to realize that all that matters here on this earth is what we've done for Him how we've glorified Him with the new life in which He has given us. The second coming is not about the terrible, I'm looking for the right word, 
the terrible occurrences here on this earth that the earth will be subjected to. The second coming is all about the physical return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom forever and ever and ever. Lastly, let's conclude with this. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, Jesus again pointed to natural indicators concerning the identifying of who he truly is. Notice what he says here. In Matthew 16, 1 through 4, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, Now when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Jesus, who are you? Do you claim to be the Messiah? And he rebukes them and he says, listen, you can understand from the sky if it will be nice or if it will be threatening. How is it that you can't understand and discern that the 333 prophecies in the Old Testament I have now fulfilled before you? Pointing to the fact that of my identity as being the Savior. For you and I need to look up. We need to be aware of the signs of the times in which we are living. And know that we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Christ. Israel is back in their land. Jerusalem is back in their hands. And the world continues to march closer and closer and closer to the depictions that we find in Revelation 6 through 19. We have individuals who have already conceived of ideas that have been given to us thousands of years ago in the Bible. We see individuals saying that going forward, no one nation should be left as a superpower, but it should be a collection of nations that come together. For the Bible says there will be ten. We see that buying and selling is moving from what's called a fiat currency, a currency backed by a government to a digital currency that can be simply translated or transferred from one country to another. We see a society moving in the direction that credit is not going to be based on earning and faithful payment but there will be social credit scores going forward that are revealed by simple compliance. We see the concepts of these ideas already in our world that eventually will be capitalized by, on by the Antichrist himself. For it is near, for it is at the door. Maranatha, Lord. Come quickly.